Just a quick note about the handout. So when you flip it over, you're going to say, well, it's upside down. It's inverted on the back side, the way that the copier ran the handout. And so I was going to fix it, and then it just seemed like a really fitting illustration for some of what we're going to see in Zechariah, which is you kind of have to hold your head sideways, turn the Turn your Bible around a little bit to get inside of these visions and dreams. And so it's fitting for our morning, a little abstraction uh, as we dive in to this minor prophet. For those of you who are wanting the handouts for some notebook and my bad print job affects that, please go online and reprint it uh, early next week. You'll be able to do that from the PDF. This is going to bring our series on the minor prophets to a conclusion. Uh, Hard to believe that we've made it through. This will be, I guess, 13 weeks or so, counting introduction, and it's been hopefully a rewarding and rich time of study for you. It has been for those of us studying and teaching, and again, just very encouraging to be in what, for many of us, are unfamiliar portions of Scripture, or familiar, but maybe not familiar for the right reasons. Not in, in taking their message, but in maybe looking for some sort of codes or interpretive things that that we ought not be looking for if we're missing the main message of the prophets. And so it's been encouraging for me to hear the men teach and instruct from these and to be in the book. And today we're coming to the book of Zechariah. Just start off with a little bit of historical background, and then we'll orient ourselves to the book. Zechariah served as the Lord's prophet in the land after the Babylonian captivity. So it's a post-exilic or after the return from exile book. He was a contemporary of Haggai. So Aaron looked at Haggai last week, and there are fairly specific dates given both in Haggai's message and in Zechariah's book, and so you can actually kind of piece together when he began his ministry in relationship to Haggai. Ezra, of course, tells us that both Haggai and Zechariah were, were encouraging and exhorting the people Uh, in the rebuilding of the temple. And so you even have Ezra talking about these two prophets and their ministry. And so it's, it's interesting, right? Compared to some of the other prophets where we have no idea where they came from, what their background was, when exactly they prophesied like Joel. Uh, Here with Zechariah, it's very familiar. So he was a contemporary with Haggai. And he really, he began his ministry about two months after Haggai started his. So God really wanted to say some things to the people of Israel at that point in their history. And his ministry seemingly, though, goes much longer than Haggai's. And when you come to chapter 9 through 14, the dates aren't really there, and it seems like perhaps that much of that message would have occurred after the dedication of the second temple that we read about in Ezra. And so Zechariah 9 through 14 probably came after that period of time. So he had a long ministry. So how do we orient ourselves to this complex book this complex message. We are ending our study with one of the more challenging prophetic books to read and one of the more challenging prophetic books to understand. And so I just want to start off with a few reminders that will hopefully keep us both from misunderstandings, but also from discouragement. We talked about at the very beginning of our time that sometimes we treat the minor prophets like the strange uncle that nobody wants to really talk to at Thanksgiving because they say strange things that are foreign to us. And Zechariah fits that mold. It is, it is, and it, it can be challenging. It can be strange to our ears for a whole host of reasons because the content in itself is different, but also because of the historical gap between us and there. Just the way that things were communicated then are not the way we communicate them in our modern day. 
We also don't want to be discouraged. I know we said we don't read the minor prophets often because we read them thinking or we have a, a false set of expectations for what we're going to take away. So again, just a few things to orient ourselves to the, to the message. First, I just want to say it is not irreverent to say that the book of Zechariah is strange. When you read about a dream in Zechariah that is strange then, and he, as we'll see, is saying, what does this mean? It's okay to say this is strange. What does this mean? And it is strange. Things start out fairly normal in the first few verses, and, but just a few in, we're confronted with these strange visions. I mean, women with stork wings are carrying a basket that holds another woman whose name happens to be wickedness. And then they drop it off in another country and then a shrine is built there. That's weird. And it's okay to say that. That's not irreverent. It's strange. But God used that language and that strange vision to both get attention and the attention of who received that and to communicate what he tells us in the book he wanted to communicate. Nothing less and nothing more. As I studied Zechariah, if you would, look at Zechariah chapter 4. This kind of became a bit of my personal theme in our readings. So Zechariah chapter 4 verse 1, Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who has awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it, and also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these things, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And that's how I feel when I'm reading the visions, especially the first few chapters of Zechariah. And so we're in good company. Okay, the man receiving the visions, right, was like, what? I mean, I can see this, the things, but like, what does it mean? So we're in good company as we read them and wrestle with these things that the Lord decided to do that. And then we say, look, though strange, the Lord determined that this was the best means of communicating this particular aspect of his message both to the original hearers through Zechariah and now for us. And so just because they're strange doesn't mean that we have nothing to get or that we should avoid them. But we also should come to these with humility. You don't read Zechariah like you do Romans. It's if you expect to get out of Zechariah in your first reading what you can get out of Romans or Ephesians or a letter that's more kind of how we think and set up with argumentation, then you're going to be discouraged. Zechariah is not nice and linear as a book. It's not like A, B, C, D, E, F, and then you get to the end and whichever letter of the alphabet the book would end on, and it's just, it's just building slowly through. or It doesn't follow a strict chronology. It's not packaged nice and neat the way we want to receive truth often, which is because of this, then this, and because of that, then this. It's, it's more complex than that. There's a multifaceted you know, quilt and there's patchwork here and there and sometimes themes come up in places you wouldn't expect or why is this here if this was here and, and the chronology doesn't work if we're trying to build a, a strict timeline and Zechariah has no intentions of giving us that. It's this vision and it's visions plural to communicate the message God wanted and it's a multifaceted message. Also, this is a good reminder for us not to attempt to find significance and symbolism that the text doesn't explain or highlight. Zechariah himself asked, what do these things mean? And sometimes he's told specifically, and sometimes there are 
aspects of the vision that he doesn't actually say. Sometimes there's details provided because he's seeing this that's communicated to us, but no significance is given to it. So when you read and there's all these colors of, of different horses, if in your study or in the materials it's like, ooh, and, and we dive in there and this color probably represents this and this colored horse represents this and this is why that they're red or brown and they represent this nation. Well, if the text doesn't tell you that, tread carefully. And if you're studying somebody that's telling you the significance of all the colors of the horses in Zechariah, ask, where do they get that information? Maybe from piecing together information from other portions of Scripture. Maybe. But maybe from their own imagination. And just because it's in a commentary or a Bible study doesn't make it so. Even if it is in a commentary that's pulled from other places of Scripture, you still have to ask this question, well, why didn't Zechariah tell me what these mean if I'm so, to be so concerned with that? So they're visions. Some things are given symbolism and meaning and significance but they communicate a whole scene and that scene is given to us and then the specific meaning is further delineated by the communicator of the vision. So not every detail of the vision should be interpreted and looked at for symbolism. One scholar has said that Haggai was the engineer or builder at this time and Zechariah was the artist. And Pastor Aaron and I determined he was an abstract artist. <laughs> so, but the illustration seems to fit. Right? Haggai, build the temple, do this, this, and, and Zechariah, his partner in ministry, a little different about how he approaches things as he communicates from the Lord. So, all right, what are the purposes then of this message? Well, given the historical context, the purpose of Zechariah's message was to encourage God's people to, to complete the temple. So similar to Haggai, he's ministering, and as I said, it says in Ezra that Haggai and Zechariah were both encouraging and exhorting the people to get on with their God-appointed task. So in one sense, it's to encourage God's people to complete the temple. And one of the visions, chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, makes that clear. Like, the temple's going to be built. These two men, you know, the men I've appointed to lead this effort, they need to get on with it. They need to build it. But undergirding that encouragement is the urgent need for God's people to return to the Lord in faithfulness. So yes, build the temple, but not just for the temple's sake. Build the temple... And be faithful. Not faithful in your building, but spiritually faithful. Have your heart renewed and build the temple. Zechariah 1. That's how the message starts out. The word of the Lord came by... I'm in Haggai. There we go. Therefore, say to them... They were close, but not that close. Therefore, say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me. Don't don't miss this. There's a lot of fun stuff in Zechariah that we're not even going to come close to touching today right it's 14 chapters and 14 dense chapters with a lot of visionary stuff how does the book start verse 3 of chapter 1 thus says the lord of hosts return to me declares the lord of hosts that i may return to you says the lord of hosts repentance spiritual renewal faithfulness in god's chosen people that was the urgent need of the day And that's where the message starts. Everything that flows after that flows from this. Don't be like what your fathers were in the disobedient generations. Be faithful to me. And an overflow of that faithfulness was, of course, to build the temple. So yes, the purpose was to exhort temple rebuilding, but also spiritual renewal. Spiritual renewal. And 
That is important for us. If we come to the scriptures thinking that real, the prophetic scriptures, that real or deep Bible study means connecting prophetic dots apart from spiritual renewal, apart from spiritual exhortation, then we're not actually studying scripture for the reasons that God gave it to us. It says that scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, right? For instruction in righteousness, for reproof, for correction, for rebuke, that we may be equipped for every good work, not just so that we may have puffed up head knowledge about the future or something like this. The book starts with a call to repentance. So we need to orient ourselves to that purpose as we try to unpack some of the complicated visions and, and amazing prophecies that are there. Connect the dots, by all means, about the Messiah and wonder. But do that for the sake of godliness. That's important. So the purpose of the book, spiritual renewal that would lead the people there to build the temple, and that includes then visions of the future that were to bolster the people's confidence in the God who was carrying out the things he said he would carry out, that he would be faithful to his promises. And so the visions do include future promises because that was to motivate the people to faithfulness in the present. So how does this book start? Well, we read just a moment ago verse 3. Right, this introductory call to repentance. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. So their ancestors, the people of Israel, therefore say to them, say to the returned exiles, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. So the necessity of repentance that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. So the message, in one sense, didn't change, did it? Always the same, return to me, but they didn't listen. So Zechariah is to call this people's mind to their mistakes. They did not listen to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Verse 6, but did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. That is the exile. So just listen to Deuteronomy chapter 30. After the declaration of the covenant blessings and curses, chapter 30, verse 1, so it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you and you, here's our phrase, return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there he will bring you back. And of course he goes on to sweet promises of bringing the people back to the land. Part of that is happening here. They've been brought back. Part of what we'll see in the visions include further punishment of nations who continue and in the future will continue to be a scourge on the Lord's people and the Lord again promises that he will be rescuing them from the nations and bringing them back to the land. Skip down to the theme section, 
before we look at the outline. I want to give you just an overview of some significant themes. Where the book is too long, of course, for us to try to read it. I didn't even make it through Joel, and it was only three chapters reading it. I'm certainly not going to make it through Zechariah. But I want to give you kind of a broad brush of these significant themes, so they're in your mind, and then we'll go back and kind of look at the outline of the book and barely dip our toe in the water of some of the things that are here. So the first theme that we see is that the Lord has not forgotten his people or his promises. And throughout the book, we see very importantly that Jerusalem will one day be all that he, that is God, had promised them. So you see that in several places. Listen to chapter 1, starting in verse 14. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. Sounds like Deuteronomy 30, right? With compassion, my house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. The Lord has not forgotten his promises to Jerusalem. And Zechariah, through Zechariah, he is reminding them of what he will do in accordance with all that he has said he will do for this people in their place. Chapter 8, verse 3, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Those are just two of the many examples I've given you there, but a theme that runs throughout is the Lord's faithfulness, not just in general, but the Lord's faithfulness to the promises that he made to this people, and they're specific, the people that are in Jerusalem and the promises that he's made to Jerusalem, and we can just fast forward, what is it at the end of Revelation, right? What's there? A new Jerusalem, right? So we see that the God has not forgotten his people or his promises, And throughout this book, he's making clear to them one day Jerusalem will be all that he intends, that he will bring to pass, and all that he has promised throughout, through the prophets, all the way back to Moses. Ever since he set apart his people out of Sinai and said, you in Exodus 19 will be a royal priesthood unto me, you will then bless the nations. Those things have started to happen, as we'll see in a minute, but are not fully happening. And certainly some of these things that he has said will be in Jerusalem have not yet happened, but will. And Zechariah says so, and he wants the people to be encouraged by that. But importantly, and second, you see throughout that the Lord's promises will not occur apart from spiritual renewal, and his promises include spiritual renewal. Now, why did I word it that way? Well, because number one, he says, you're not going to have the things that I'm talking about in these visions in the future if you're not spiritually renewed. There's a major ethical portion to this book, chapter seven and eight, for example, Right, you have all these visions and we get caught up in the visions. Two of them are explicitly about purification and and them being righteous in the land. They will not be established in the land as God promised apart from spiritual renewal. That's the message, that's part of Zechariah's message. These promises will come to pass, but they won't come to pass apart from the spiritual renewal of God's people. So there's like an urging and a warning there. But then also the promises include the fact that God will spiritually renew his people. So there's 
two aspects to his promises there, right? Zechariah chapter 7. So you've already heard chapter 1 where he calls them to return, right? So there's spiritual renewal, repentance, turning to the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother and do not oppress the widow or the orphan the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great wrath came upon the Lord of hosts. And just as he called and they would not listen, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord. And he goes on to say, look, I scattered them and I made them desolate. Why? Because they were not renewed. They were not obeying. They were not walking in righteousness. And so this is a word to the people in Zechariah's day, to walk in righteousness. Now look at Zechariah 12. So again, 9 through 14 kind of marks out this different section of the book where it's more future-oriented. It's not as chronologically clear more promises concerning the Messiah, concerning future restoration are woven in. But listen to this promise. So you cannot have the promises of God apart from spiritual renewal. That is communicated to the people. But now God also promises that they will be spiritually renewed because of his work. Chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Do you hear that? That's God's work in their hearts. So that with the result that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem. That's the mourning of repentance. Like the mourning of, wow, I did not practice that one. Had a drimon in the plain of Megiddo or Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of Nathan, and so on and so forth. So we often read that verse because it's an amazing statement of what will happen when they look upon the Messiah who was slain for them, and that's very important. But notice first, spiritual renewal precedes that. The Lord pours forth his spirit, and that brings about the renewal that allows them to recognize who the Messiah is and rightly see what God has done through him. Right? So he promises spiritual renewal in addition to promising the restoration that will come from spiritual renewal. Third, the Lord will provide the shepherd, priest, king his people need. Right? Another theme throughout is that the Lord will provide the shepherd, priest, king his people need. And that's multifaceted and you're going to study that on your own. Right? The shepherd, priest, king, that's the Messiah. I say it's multifaceted because it's not one like, like concrete sort of or I guess monochromatic, right, black and white sort of picture of the Messiah that moves through the book. It's multifaceted. There's a shepherd, and then there's a priest. There's a branch who's an individual, and those things come together in this multifaceted portrait of the shepherd, priest, king that God's people need, right? And of course, we know that that's Jesus Christ. But then, they didn't have that, that, that vision then. They had this this portrait of a figure that they needed who would come and serve. Also, it tells us that the shepherd, priest, king will be slain. So we see in Zechariah, not only will God provide the shepherd, priest, king that his people most desperately need, but we see that king rejected and slain. 
Then we see also, lastly, another significant theme throughout, is that the Lord will bless the nations through his people. And if you were in first service, some of that probably sounds a little bit familiar, right? Where Pastor Rick is in Ephesians. So Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 11 and... and I'm turning to Zephaniah. I'm all over the place. Zechariah chapter 2. There we go. Many nations, in verse 11, will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Now, what did you just hear? That in Christ, the dividing wall has been taken down between Jew and Gentile. That we who were formerly outside of that promise are now in that promise. Do you hear that? The nations will be called my people. That designation who was very specially reserved for the nation of Israel apply will, and will apply to the nations. Some of that is now. You and I as Gentiles are God's people. Okay? But here he's telling the nation of Israel that in that day with restoration that the Lord will bless the nations through the nation of Israel, which again is part of his purposes when he called them out of Sinai to be a royal priesthood. Right? So you see this also in some other passages and you should be calling to mind Rick's, Rick's message because there's some overlap here in the theme. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. All right, so then go back up to the basic outline. And I'm simply just going to walk through and give very brief comments. It won't even be a running commentary. We don't have time to read through all this, but I, wanna, I want you to orient, orient yourself to kind of the outline, give a, a basic structure of the book. So in chapter one, the message opens with this call to repentance. And that, again, should undergird how we See, it should be the, 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 the way that we view the rest of the book. Right? So then in chapter 1, verse 7 through 6, 8, you have these eight night visions. And that's kind of the fun stuff that we're uh, having fun with earlier. It's, there's a lot of different things going on. Then after these visions, in, at the end of chapter 6, you see this picture of messianic hope for future restoration. And there's this branch that's introduced. And this notion of a priest king starts to come into view. Right? Not as concretely as we would like to see then, but we see it more based on later revelation. Then chapter 7 through 8, he deals with some practical matters and, and gives exhortations of things that were going on for the people. And that's where we have these moral exhortations. They were fasting. He, he corrects their, their view of fasting and he encourages them. And you see this message of you need to look backward at the mistakes of your ancestors and live righteously. And you need to look forward to what I'm saying I'm going to bring about. And you need to live righteously in light of that. And so there's that. And then chapter 9 through 14, there's two more oracles or burdens, two messages, if you will. And a lot of that is future-oriented. There's a lot of that day, on that day language. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So what are these visions? What are these visions? So starting in chapter 1, verse 7, you have this vision of horsemen patrolling the earth. Horsemen patrolling the earth. And this provides a good example of, so we're reading through this and we, this vision. So there's these angel of the Lord standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. And then our temptation is to stop. Well, I guess let's go back up to seven. So seven, eight. So he's at night. Oh, there's a man on a red horse and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine with red sorrel and white horses behind him. And then we stop. I'm like, Ooh, okay. All right. I got to dig in here. What's the significance of them being myrtle trees? And he's in a ravine and not on a, on a hill. And 
and there's red and white, and we stop. But you've got to read the whole vision, okay? You have to read the whole vision because the author may tell us what those things mean, and he may tell us what things we don't need to worry about what they mean if you just read the whole thing. So don't stop too soon. Don't take a verse out of context and try to unpack it, right? There's a whole vision here. It goes all the way through 17, right? So the angel of the Lord talks about what happened. How do we understand the point of this first vision? Well, you see it in the way that the Lord responds, the angel of the Lord responds to what's going on. So in the vision, there's these horsemen and they say, we've patrolled the earth and all is peaceful and quiet. And you think, well, that sounds pretty good. This must be a positive message, right? The earth is at peace, right? But then then the angel says, oh, Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem? Which is very negative, right? And so we start to think, oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe the fact that the earth was peaceful and quiet is not a good thing in this vision. Then the Lord answered, and who the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words, and the angel who was speaking with me proclaiming, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm zealous for Jerusalem. Right? So he responds to verse 12, and I'm angry with the nations who are at ease. You see that? Ease. And you see, what did the horsemen find when they were running around? Peace and safety and quiet. He says, I'm angry with them that are at ease. So Jerusalem has not been at ease. The nations have, right? The Lord used the nations to punish his people, but they took it even further, it says here, than, than, than what they should have, right? The Lord was a little angry, but they furthered the disaster, the nations, against his people. So the point of going through all this, I'm not going to do this on the other ones, is so we got to read the whole vision, okay? It's just how do you acclimate yourself to to visions when we're reading the scripture read the whole thing and then unpack it and look for the clues that are in the text not to harp on this too much but notice they're not going to go into anything about colors or other symbolism all right so this first message is basically saying that God is jealous it's a reminder that God is jealous for his people and Jerusalem he's not forgotten them the nations that punish Jerusalem are at ease but God reminds Zechariah and then the people that doesn't mean God has forgotten his people. The fact that those who inflicted pain and disaster upon Jerusalem are at ease, that doesn't mean that God is not going to deal justly with them in his vengeance and in his wrath to uphold the cause of his people. The second vision starts in verse 18, and it's only a couple verses, and it's four horns and four craftsmen. Four horns and four craftsmen, and it seems that the horns represent authorities or or, or nations and that the craftsmen are, are there to, to tear these down and the point of the vision is that God will crush Israel's enemies right the craftsmen there are, are on God's team if you will and they've come to throw down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against Judah it says that in verse 21 so this is to say look God will crush Israel's enemies and those who oppose his restorative purposes for the nation of Israel. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 13, you have the vision of the survey of Jerusalem. Right? And this is interesting. So Zechariah says to someone that has a measuring line, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out. Another angel was coming to meet him and said to him, run and speak to that young... So, man, there's so many characters in this dream. So the first one Zechariah meets, I mean, that sounds reasonable. He's going to measure Jerusalem. And then, then another one comes in and it's like, well, tells another one to go tell him to stop, to not do the thing that Zechariah saw him going to do. And all of that to illustrate something. Well, why? Why shouldn't the man measure? Well, because Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls, because it will be so plentiful in number, it will be so prosperous. 
right? So that's one aspect. You see that in verse 4. And then verse 5, because God will be Jerusalem's protection. They don't need those walls. They have God himself who will uphold and protect them. And so the vision communicates the prosperity and security of a restored Jerusalem. The prosperity and a security of a restored Jerusalem. Chapter 3, one of the more well-known texts in Zechariah, sometimes because of our, uh, when we're studying angelology, which you study good angels and bad angels or demons and Satan, and we come here because you have the, the adversary is mentioned who's accusing this individual. But the point of the vision is actually purification. It's not so much about what Satan is doing. It's about the need for purification in the land. So who's being purified? High priest, right? The high priest. So this is a portrayal of Israel being restored to her purpose as a kingdom of priests, which is Exodus 19.6. So this purification and this vision of the priest symbolizes what God intended for all of the people that they would be pure. In a restored Jerusalem, the people will be purified and they will all serve as a royal priesthood. That's the idea. Verse 8 introduces this, this branch figure, which is messianic. A messianic figure is kind of introduced there, just hinted at a little bit, and then there's some building that happens on that later. Chapter 5, you have a scroll flying through the air. I lifted my, my eyes again and looked, and behold, there was a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width 10 cubits. So it's this big scroll, and this is an, an admonition to the people to turn, to be holy, to live righteously. I skipped chapter 4, didn't I? So chapter 4, 4 through 14, the lampstand and the two olive trees. What's the point of this? Well, that God's spirit is the resource that's needed for the completing of the temple. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. So we read verse 5 earlier. The angel asks Zechariah, do you know what these are? And he said, no, no, my Lord. Verse 6, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by my might, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And he goes on. So Zerubbabel, the, the temple building, that's going to take place not by mere human might, but because of the Lord's spirit and his provision. So God is the resource that the people needed. So you see the linkage between turning back to the Lord so that they will be restored, and then the Lord saying, you need me to complete what I've asked you to complete. Right? They can't do that on their own. And so this vision tells that they need God and that Zerubbabel and Joshua will be successful in what God has asked them to do. Now we get to the flying scroll and the woman in a basket carried by other women with stork wings. All right? So these are both admonitions, exhortations, rebukes even on matters of obedience and righteousness. This is the heart where you see in these visions that the Lord is saying, you will not have what I'm promising in this future apart from spiritual renewal. So the flying scroll vision, you see condemnation of sin. Right? Condemnation of sin. 
It says, everyone who steals, verse 3, will be purged away according to the writing on one side of the scroll. And everyone who swears, that is falsely, right, purge, pur- will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. So ri- unrighteousness removed. That's the point of the vision. Condemnation of sin and a reminder of the necessity of spiritual renewal for restoration. And then similarly, the vision of the woman in a basket. Chapter 5, verse 5. Then the angel was speaking with me and says, Well, now what do you see? And verse 6, I said, What is it? And he said, This is the ephah going forth. And he again, This is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. And then he said, This is wickedness. And threw her down to the middle of the ephah and cast the lead weight on its opening. And then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and there two women were coming out with the wind in their wings. And they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. And I said to the angel who was speaking, where are they taking the ephah or the basket? Then he said to me, to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. The picture here is the removal of wickedness from the midst of the people. So false worship, wickedness, idolatry, that'll be taken somewhere else. Purification and a reminder implicitly of the necessity of purification for renewal of the land. It will not happen apart from spiritual renewal. And that's so important for us. Just to stop right there for a minute. The promises to Zion are political in the sense that they include land. They include geography. They include a king, the king. So they're political in that sense. But any notion that the promises of God, are mere, of, of God to Israel are merely political, like, like, that's false. This doesn't allow us to think that way. So we, when we read the, the news of the day, what, if every nation in the world right now was a fan of Israel rather than an opponent, but Israel still rejected their Messiah, these things would not be happening. We would not look at that and be like, God's fulfilling his promises to restore that land. That is not happening apart from spiritual renewal. That's very important. The prophets say the people will see their Messiah, they will know who he is, and then all of these things will happen. The land will be purified, right? Wickedness will be brought out. They will be a nation of priests. They will be all that God had commanded. And unrepentant Israel, who does not know the Messiah, is in no sense restored. And we have to remember that. It's very important, right? The restoration comes through the slain Messiah, the slain and risen Messiah who is the king for that people and they will be spiritually renewed and then everything else that God has promised them will happen but not apart from spiritual renewal and those visions make that clear. The vision section ends kind of as a bookend with the open with chariots patrolling the earth and so another patrol and this time communicating that God is going to judge the nations. That's in the first part of chapter 6. Then in the end of chapter 6, you have uh, another portrait of, I think, really messianic hope for future restoration. You see that in 9 through 15. And there's lots of avenues in verses 11 through 15 for study. The branch, the messianic role, priest, king, the combination of that role. Right? You think Psalm 110, you think the things Hebrew says, those things. A lot of avenues to study there, so you can do that on your own. Chapter 7 through 8, again, practical matters and exhortations. The people come, there's a query, what about our fast at the beginning in, in chapter 7? 
And then at the end of chapter 8, verse 19, you see a similar idea um, with regard to fasting being the topic. So that kind of links these sections of Zechariah together. And again, we could sum it up this way, and that is look backwards, see the mistakes from before, live righteously in light of their mistakes. Look at the promises that God says about future, the hope for restoration, the Messiah, and live righteously in light of those things. So you're looking back, you live righteously in response to what you see, people. You look forward, you live righteously to what you see, my people. That's the idea in this section. And then chapter 9 begins these two prophetic burdens or oracles. And there's a future orientation here for the original audience, right? Lots of on-that-day language. But some of the on-that-day things have happened in our day, prior to our day. Remember, Zechariah is writing these things prior to the first advent of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so that's future for them when they're writing this. So not all future orientation that we read 9 through 14 is future for us. But some is. And Zechariah doesn't like break it down nice and easy for us, right? Because for him, it's all future. It's one big complex that he's talking about coming. And so we read this with the benefit of progressive revelation in hindsight because of that, right? We see the later details. We know that Jesus Christ came once and that he's coming again. And so we can read and see these things, first coming, second coming type things and piece together. But those things were not in the mind of Zechariah, he communicated these things. We have the benefit of further revelation that we then look back and see. Remember, just as an illustration, Acts 1, 6, when the disciples are with Christ and he's talking about the kingdom, they say, it's now, you're restoring it now. And that wasn't a bad question. That was the logical conclusion to his teaching. He taught throughout his earthly ministry about kingdoms, that they were going to reign, that there was going to be restoration. And so then they say, is that right now? Well, what's significant about that in light of what we're going to read in 9 through 14? Well, that was one coming correct? So the disciples, even after the earthly ministry of Christ and teaching them after his resurrection, still weren't locked in to the notion of a gap between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And if the disciples weren't oriented there, when we read Zechariah, we certainly shouldn't expect him to give us really carefully laid out specific details about the two comings. We have that in hindsight. So think future orientation, big complex event. It's not a timeline, right? It's, it's a complex. And some of those things we've experienced now, some of those things nobody has experienced yet, right? Well, what have we experienced now? The king has come, right? The king has come. The arrival of the king, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, and shout in triumph. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a donkey. Right? Every Christmas we celebrate this. Okay? That was future for them, not future for us. That's happened. Okay? What's something that hasn't happened that's still future even for us? Well, God's people, Israel, in whole, recognizing their slain Messiah in repentance, as all Israel recognizes in repentance the one whom the Lord sent that they rejected as the means of their salvation, right? That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 11. That hasn't happened yet. And so that's why I say future orientation for Zechariah, but some for us is past and some is future, right? So do you, in your handout, do you, I've given you 9, 1, 11 through 17. Are there sub bullets in your handout? Okay, great. So you can kind of follow through and see some of the ways that the chapters break down on your own.
want to point out just at the end of chapter 14. Let's turn there. Again, you, this picture that we have in Zechariah 14, especially at the end, is the purity of the ultimate and restored land. In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots will be like bowls before the altar. altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem will be holy to the Lord, and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Several things there, but this notion of pure, purity and a pure people that are all worshiping the Lord. And when you look forward at Revelation 11 and Revelation 19 and you see a similar picture, that all will recognize the Lord and his Christ. So what are some takeaways as we wrap up? First, marvel at the outworking of God's plan for the ages, for Jew and Gentile. When you study Zechariah closely, which is not what we just did, but when you study Zechariah closely, you see that God is the surety that's bringing about his plan for the ages. When Rick introduced Ephesians 1, and we have this wonderful language about God carrying everything out according to his plans from eternity past, and his wisdom being demonstrated as he's, he's working out his redemptive purposes. Zechariah should cause us to, to see those things. Some of them we've already had a foretaste of, and some of them are yet to come. And the whole message communicates God is, is outworking God is working out his plans. Think of Romans eleven thirty three 33 through 36, when Paul bursts forth in worship after communicating about the very things that Zechariah is communicating about, God's salvation of his people, right? Secondly, do not separate, this is third on your list, do not separate kingdom hope and spiritual renewal. Do not separate your kingdom hope your future hope in the return of Jesus Christ and spending eternity with him and his kingdom being manifest and revealed, don't separate that from spiritual renewal. We can't long for heaven and being with Christ and all of those things apart from also recognizing that that means that we're purified, that our longing for that now should have a period, that then should have a period purifying effect now. Let's say that five times fast. 2 Peter 3, the future hope is to purify now. Why? Because the new heavens and new earth will be the place where righteousness dwells. That's what Zechariah is talking about. Okay? 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 2, right? You, your, your hope is, has a purifying effect. And lastly, recognize what the church already possesses in Christ. Read Zechariah, see the promises of the priest king, shepherd, Messiah, and rejoice in what the church possesses right now. Colossians 1, you have been transferred in the kingdom of his beloved son. Romans 8, 34, our priest intercedes for us now, right? We have that great high priest. And as we read in Ephesians, and if we're in second service, we'll hear it coming up. We were strangers to those promises. Which promises? Some of the promises that we see in Zechariah. We were strangers and far off, but we've been brought near in Christ. We have that now, and we should rejoice in what we have now and look forward to the furthering of God's plan.